particular effectiveness depends not only on Firth and Tucci's believability as a couple, but also on the complementarity of their respective personas. That's Justin Chang of Los Angeles Times, former guest here on Cinephile, talking about the new film Supernova, which is what we're reviewing this week here on Cinephile. We also have major news in that I was sent a screener to Coming to America 2. I don't even need to say two, because the way they do it is the coming to America, T.O. becomes two. But yeah, I was sent to screener for it. I am uh, forbidden from speaking about it. Joe sent me the rules. I mean, it's very, very strict. I can't tweet. I can't, I can't say a word to anyone. I get thrown into prison or something here. So I can't talk about it, but I can tell you this. We're going to be reviewing it next week, because it's available on Amazon Prime Friday, March 5th. I can tell you, I record an interview with Jermaine Fowler, who is the main star of Coming to America 2, playing Eddie Murphy's son. And Louis Anderson, the great Louis Anderson, one of the great comics the last 30 years, is going to join us today for almost 25 minutes. He's awesome, and he is uh, in the new movie, and he tells some great stories about just his life in comedy. Eddie Murphy, Life with Louis, Baskets, it's, uh, it's outstanding. And it's actually going to be the highlight of today's podcast. In addition to that, uh, the major news involving my man Martin Scorsese is he's just taking shots at streaming. I just love it. Just, just Every year, Marty's going to go after someone. First, it was superheroes, now it's streaming, even though... Netflix gave him a gazillion amount of dollars for the Irishman. He's coming after them. And it's, it's so well written. I'm going to read uh, part of his essay. It's called Il Maestro. And he's talking about Fellini and why he just adores Fellini, as do I, and talks about how film has become content. But it's an incredible essay. I'm going to read quite a bit of it, actually. If you don't like it, you can skip ahead. I'm telling you, it's great. Uh, also, news involving Killers of the Flower Moon. Marty's new movie as a new star has been named. Writers Guild Award nominees. And the Golden Globes are taking place this Sunday. Maybe we'll do some rapid-fire preview. I haven't taken a great look at who the winners are going to be, but maybe that makes it more fun. I'll kind of just tell you who I think should win, who will win. That's always fun. And in honor of Stanley Tucci, who is one of the stars of Supernova, uh, we're going to do the Mount Rushmore of Stanley Tucci movies. He's been a great, great actor for a long, long time, and that's why I wanted to talk about him today. As always, appreciate you supporting us here in Cinephile. Please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Always appreciate all the support from all of you. Literally, we have not missed an episode um, since the pandemic has began, and I, I thank all of you for all your support along the way. This is from Meh Meh. Great to hear Joe as well. That's right. Joe is sick. He's back now. We love Vigo and Ethan Hawke in this house. Can't wait to pick up Ethan's book. That's the thing about this show. There's been some great book recommendations as well as movies. It's a great point. Thank you for noticing that. David Duchovny has a new book out. He wrote a previous book, which was great, called Bucky Fucking Dent, which if you're a baseball fan, you know why that's funny, because he's a New York guy, and it's a book about a father and son, Yankees, Red Sox, 1978. Duchovny actually has a new book out, and I read a review, I think from the Washington Post, in which they said this is his fourth book. Duchovny actually wanted to be a writer. That was his idea, to be a novelist. Well, I guess actually he wanted to be a baseball player first. When that didn't work out, uh, he decided to be a novelist, and then the whole acting thing worked out. X-Files, Californication, all the rest of it. But apparently his fourth book book is his best book. So uh, forthcoming book review. Once I get a minute here, I'm going to go pick up David Duchovny's new book. I don't believe it has any sort of movie tie-in, whereas Ethan Hawke's book was about, you know, an actor in the theater. Uh, I don't even know what this is about. I think Mormonism in the desert, and there's lots of stuff going on here. All right, Black 519 I love listening to the show. Chemistry between you and Joe is amazing. You know, Joe's the best. What are your thoughts on the movie A Time to Kill? Just finished watching it. The final speech to the jury by Matthew McConaughey is one of the best performances I've seen in quite some time. Very powerful and moving. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, I'll be honest. Um, but I did really like it at the time. I remember Sam Jackson was great. Just furious. Uh, that was real Sam Jackson peak rage era. Was it 1997, 96, something like that? Um, McConaughey, that was his first breakthrough role. He'd, of course, been in Dazed and Confused. He'd done a couple of small bit roles, but that was his first starring role, and, and he was terrific. I don't remember much of it. I apologize. I don't remember that final speech, but I, I did enjoy the movie at the time. Doc Lou, Iowa. 
I remember when you first started doing podcasts, you would never curse. Now you're reading soft porn from Ethan's book, What an Evolution. <laughs> Listen, Doc, I've realized with these podcasts, you have to be unfettered and authentic. And this is the, the competition I'm dealing with, okay? Uh, agree with your Donnie Brasco review. It may have been Al's best work. Sad, sullen look. A weak man compared to the in-charge Michael Corleone, Tony Montana, and Carlito. I'm thrilled that you are as big a fan of Donnie Brasco as I am, dblack 519 uh, We've also got one here from... Pat Rat 90 Been a fan of Adnan as many appearances on Levitor, but never made the move to listen until now. Glad I did. That's great news, Pat. That's what I like to hear. New listeners coming to Cinephile. Great flow, extensive knowledge of movies, great listening, good library, so I don't need to rely on waiting for new episodes to pop up. Five Maple Leafs. Pat Rat, that may be the best one we've received all week. I, I like hearing new listeners. I worry that we just have a, a niche audience. We're not growing the podcast. Pat Rat, you are proof we are growing the audience and uh, speaking of Levitard, I was actually going to be on there the other day, but I was, I was busy with actual work. But I will make an appearance with uh, Dan and the boys. I will infiltrate, rather, Dan and the boys sooner rather than later. All right, let's get to some movies. Sam, Academy Award winner Colin Firth, and Tusker, Academy Award nominee Stanley Tucci, partners of 20 years are traveling across England in their old camper van visiting friends, family, and places from their past. Following a life-changing diagnosis, their time together has become more important than ever until secret plans test their love like never before. It's from Harry McQueen, a director and writer I'm not familiar with, but I love Stanley Tucci, which is why I decided to watch Supernova. There had been some talk earlier in the awards season that Tucci was going to get a Best Supporting Actor nomination and maybe even win. However, he has been snubbed so far by the Golden Globes and the Screen Actors Guild Awards, and after having seen this film... I'm astonished. Now, granted, I'm a huge Tucci fan, but I think his performance along with Colin Firth, both are award-worthy and deserving of recognition. Maybe not nominations. Okay, fine. It's tough to get only five nominees, but I hope more people see this movie. And it's one of these gentle, sweet films. It's a real rumination and meditation on life itself. It's about 90 minutes long. It consists of these two guys, uh, you know, married couple for an indeterminate amount of years who realize one of them has an illness, which is Tucci, who's suffering from dementia. And they realize there's not much time left, so let's take a journey through the wilderness and go visit Colin Firth's family, Sam. And Tucci plans a surprise birthday party for him and, and all the rest of it. But really, you know, the journey is just an excuse to focus on these two characters. It is, uh, as they say in uh, movie theater parlance, it's a two-hander because it really is just Firth and Tucci going at it. And I just thought it was a really sweet film. It's gentle. It's touching. And it's the kind of film that really makes you consider your own mortality. I was doing a uh, high school Zoom the other day, shout out to Sayaset in Long Island, and one of the people, Aurora, asked me, um, you know, what makes a good movie? Like, like how, do you, how do you evaluate movies as a film critic? And I said, you know, it has to have a really strong emotional connection. I said, you could write that out of 10. Okay, here's the acting out of 10. Here's the directing. Here's the writing. Here's the cinematography. Here's the score, costume design, whatever you like. But I said, it has to have an emotional connection. My favorite movies, the best movies that I know, are the ones that really hit you in the heart, right? The movies that sometimes you say, okay, they appeal to my head. I can tell that they're smart and they're brainy, but I didn't feel personally moved by it. And I referenced the movie Roma, which critics loved, and I, I didn't. I just said I, I couldn't get attached to it as much as I appreciated the stark black and white cinematography, the fact it clearly came from Alfonso Coron's heart, the fact that immigration and immigrant stories are in short supply. And yet Minari is a film which I raved about, was one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, similar subject matter, different families, obviously, rather than Mexican, they're Koreans. But it was a film that I, I did get attached to. So sometimes you can't even explain it. It's just an emotional connection. And while watching Supernova, that was the feeling that I had. I said, listen... Anytime I watch a movie and I think about it afterwards and I ponder it, then that's a movie that made a real impact upon me. And it isn't necessarily 
a collection of large scenes, which is what I liked about it. I thought, okay, story of two men in love. Uh, one is dying. You're going to get a bunch of emotional scenes. Maybe one cheated on the other. Maybe there's an emotional reconciliation. But Harry McQueen really um, avoids a lot of those tropes. And I can tell why Stanley Tucci, who's been uh, making the circuit, hopefully we can get him on the pod at some point. I've seen him on a couple of podcasts. He was been on a couple of shows, uh, Fallon, and uh, I believe he was on Colbert. And he said that he read the script and just because it's all there on the page. And Colin Firth had been, had been friends for 20 years. He gives Colin Firth a call. Hey, you want to do this movie with me? Yeah, okay, sure. And he said they were kind of isolated. So Stanley Tucci, for those who are unaware, is a phenomenal cook. I mean, look, we're going to talk about Big Night a little bit later on, but he's got this new series on CNN, which I'm all over as well. You know, He's just eating his way through Italy right now through the pandemic. But he said they were making the movie, and every night Tucci would just make food, and Colin Firth would come over. And I said, what a great movie experience. We're going to make a movie with one of your buddies, and that night he comes over, have a dinner, a glass of wine, and the next day we'll do it again. So they're clearly good friends, and I think that helps when watching the film. You can believe these two guys um, are clearly in love and clearly have a lot of affection for each other. And Sam is choked up over the fact that, that Tusker is, is fading away. But I mentioned the emotional connection. I am fortunate enough, I do not have anyone close to me who suffers from, uh, well, I shouldn't say, I mean, listen, I've, I've seen people in the family who have dementia, but I, I should say at least as far as my immediate parents, um, you know, my wife's parents, thankfully don't suffer this way. But I, I've definitely seen family members or people within the family who, struggle with, you know, uh, whether it's memory loss or just uh, not recognizing things. And it's all very, very uh, sad to see. And I mentioned earlier when it came to following Viggo Mortensen's film that he said, listen, I really wanted to show Dementia the way it is, how it's different perspectives. Well, this is another example of that with Supernova that, you know, Stanley Tucci obviously is not aware that he is uh, messing up. But at the same time, he kind of is because he's on the precipice of really starting to lose his faculties. And at one point, in a really emotional scene, the best scene of the movie, he says to Colin Firth's character, I want to be remembered for who I was rather than what I'm about to become, which is a hell of a line, really good piece of dialogue. And I can only imagine if you were sick, that's what you'd say. Listen, I mean, I had a good friend, my buddy Jeff Hetherington, who died at the age of 32 from brain cancer. And I remember the last time I met him in the hospital, you know, we were just talking and, you know, trying to make him laugh and stuff. And, and I said, you know, I'll try to come by tomorrow, whatever it was. He said, hey, man, like, no, no pity. Like, he, he knew what it was about. He knew he was dying. He didn't want anyone feeling sorry for himself. And I think that's something that's always very noble when you see stories about people who are dying, that they say, listen, I don't want to be remembered as this. I don't want people feeling sorry for me. I don't want everyone remembering if I was a great guy, right? If you didn't like me, that's fine. I am who I am, warts and all. Don't, don't try to color this and don't try to be overly sentimental about it. Um, my dear friend Pedro Gomez, who I worked with for years at ESPN, passed away recently. So I've been thinking a lot about Pedro and his family. So movies like this, they have to connect with you in a certain way. And it makes you appreciate your mortality and, and just the decisions you make. And all of which is to say, anytime a movie does that, a 90-minute movie, then I think that has a pretty strong impact. It's obviously well acted, as I mentioned, the chemistry between Firth and Tucci. Um, but one thing I appreciate, by the way, too, is the restraint. Yes, they're a gay couple, but it's not like... Um, how do I phrase this? They're not obsequious about it. You know what I mean? Like one of the guys is dying. So it's not like they're uh, in the mood for hanky panky here. If anything, it's kind of just a gentle kiss on the bald head of Stanley Tucci. That's how these two guys are showing affection because they know um, time is slipping away. Some good supporting performances as well. Pippa Haywood, Peter McQueen. But those constantly kind of fade into the sunset. It's more about the, the main performances. Love the score as well. Very rare that I watch a movie and then I immediately rewound just to watch the final scene. I won't give it away, but... Um, there's a great melodic piece being played. And I, I listened to the end credits just because the music was so well done. So I'm not necessarily prone to piano scores, but I thought they were really exquisite. Supernova is a film for those who can appreciate two great actors going round and round and Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci. 
And it's certainly a powerful film about mortality. And God knows, with the way we're dealing with everything in the world right now, the fact that we just passed this gruesome milestone of 500,000 people dead from COVID-19 in America, um, you can certainly appreciate the importance of a movie like this that makes you appreciate what we all have in life, especially with our loved ones. Supernova, I'm giving it three maple leaves. Joe. Adnan, so I read that when this movie was being first made and developed that Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth read the script together, they were cast in opposite roles. So Firth was supposed to play Tusker and Tucci was supposed to play Sam. If that had happened, do you think that that would have changed the film or do you think their chemistry was strong enough to where it still would have transcended something as tough as dementia? That's so great that you mentioned that, Joe, because I, I do remember Tucci mentioned that. He said in the theater, he likes doing that. Like, he, he made a great point. I think I mentioned this last week instead of file, like, why the theater is the worst, because he goes, God, I couldn't imagine for six months. I did tell the story. Six months, you know, you're, you don't see your kids at night. You don't see them in the morning. You, you're just literally living on an island. You've got to get your sleep. You've got to get your exercise. You go, and all you're doing is the play for literally six months of your life. It just eats you alive. So he said what he do, used to like with short-run plays, like for four weeks, and he said him and Tony Shalhoub like to do plays like this, although Supernova, I don't believe, is based on a play. But he goes, you know, mainly two characters, we would do it for four weeks and then flip it around and do it for four weeks. And he goes, that actually happens a lot in the theater, more than you realize. Um, I can think of an example, obviously, Pacino played Ricky Roman, Glengarry Glenn Ross. I've seen Glengarry Glenn Ross several times uh, as a stage production. And in the most recent production on Broadway, he plays Shelley the Machine Levine, which is the Jack Lemmon character. And Bobby Cannavale, his good friend, played Ricky Roma. So... I do like the fact that actors like to flip it up a little bit, but I do think it would have made a, a, a seriously different film. Like, I really appreciate this type of approach. It's almost, this may sound silly, Joe, but almost in terms of stature, Colin Firth is like this strong, sturdy guy, and Tucci is this, you know, slim, slight guy. He seems more delicate, more sensitive. He's the one um, who I think seems a little more frail. Like, almost in terms of physicality, I like that these guys are playing these roles. But sometimes, you know, it's kind of fun to flip it on its head. So I, I, I wouldn't almost mind an alternative version, but I think this was the good version that they have. I love it. I love it. And, I, and it, it seems like because of this casting, too, that the movie doesn't milk cheap tears or like cheap sentimentality for the sake of it. Absolutely. I mean, the one review that I really like from Glenn Weldon of NPR, in scene after scene as the two men visit friends and family one last time, we glimpse the showier, more maudlin film that Supernova could, but never does, devolve into, hovering just at the edges. There's one scene where Stanley Tucci appears to be on the verge of crying, and it's so well acted because he fights back the tears, which I think so often in life people do. You know what I mean? Like that's Nobody likes to cry in front of their partner, so they always try to fight it back. And it's great because you go in a, in a lesser movie, a more showier film, he would have started bawling and there's this big emotional you know, speech. And instead, he just he kind of starts to cry, pulls it back, able to steady himself. And I, it's actually one of my favorite moments of the movie. So I think that's why it, uh, it really did work for me. K. Austin Collins of Rolling Stone, the film accordingly owes a great deal of its power to its actors who are, of course, more than merely plausible as longtime partners whose way through the small dramas of the everyday is the movie's real substance. Supernova, I recommend highly enough. Uh, I know it's playing in select theaters. I know most of us do not have theaters open, although good news for Joe in New York. New York City is going to be opening theaters, I believe, 10%, 25%, early March, March 5th. So if you're in the New York area, you'll be able to go to the movies uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, I myself watched it on DirecTV. I paid 8 bucks for it. So Supernova, three-night rental, uh, just as I did with Promising a Woman. All right, let's get to some news before we get to Louis Anderson. My man Marty, 
Scorsese railing against the movie business in a powerful new essay on Federico Fellini published in the March 2021 edition of Harper's Magazine. Titled Il Maestro, the essay finds Scorsese waxing poetic on Fellini's filmography and using the Italian filmmaking icon to argue why the magic of cinema is now being lost among the onslaught of content being released by film studios and streaming companies. Scorsese acknowledges streamers benefit his career. Without Netflix, there would be no The Irishman. Without Apple, there would be no Killers in the Flower Moon on the way. But writes, the art of cinema is being systematically devalued, sidelined, demeaned, and reduced to its lowest common denominator by conceptualization of films as content. As recently as 15 years ago, the term content was heard only when people were discussing the cinema on a serious level and it was contrasted with and measured against form. Then gradually it was used more and more by the people who took over media companies, most of whom knew nothing about the history of the art form or even cared enough to think that they should. Content became a business term for all moving images, a David Lean movie, a cat video, a Super Bowl commercial, a superhero sequel, a series episode. It was linked, of course, not to the theatrical experience, but to home viewing on the streaming platforms that have come to overtake the movie-going experience, just as Amazon overtook physical stores. The packaging of all moving images as equitable content has created a situation in which everything is presented to the viewer on a level playing field, which sounds democratic but isn't, Scorsese continues. If further viewing is suggested by algorithms based on what you've already seen, and the suggestions are based only on subject matter or genre, then what does that do to the art of cinema? Scorsese adds, curating isn't undemocratic or elitist, a term that is now used so often that it's become meaningless. It's an act of generosity. You're sharing what you love and what has inspired you. The best streaming platforms such as the Criterion Channel and Mubi and traditional outlets such as TCM are based on curating. They're actually curated. Shout out to Ben Mankowitz. Algorithms by definition are based on calculations that treat the viewer as a consumer and nothing else. Later in the essay, Scorsese writes, the cinema and the importance it holds in our culture has changed and that cinephiles can't depend on the movie business such as it is to take care of cinema. In the movie business, which is now the mass visual entertainment business, the emphasis is always on the word business, and value is always determined by the amount of money to be made from any given property. In that sense, everything from Sunrise, wow, I love the F.W. Murnau shout out, to La Strada to 2001 is now pretty much rung dry and ready for the art film swim lane on a streaming platform. Those of us who know the cinema and its history have to share our love and our knowledge with as many people as possible, and we have to make it crystal clear to the current legal owners of these films that they amount to much, much more than mere property to be exploited and then locked away. They are among the greatest treasures of our culture, and they must be treated accordingly. Scorsese concludes, I suppose we also have to refine our notions of what cinema is and what it isn't. Federico Fellini is a good place to start. You can say a lot of things about Fellini's movies, but here's one thing that is incontestable. They are cinema. Fellini's work goes a long way toward defining the art form. Fellini, one of my favorite directors as well. Eight and a Half is one of my favorite movies. I love La Strada, which uh, Scott Rogowski reviewed uh, a few months ago. Um, uh, listen, Knights of Cabiria is really good with Gioletta Messina. Um, Roma, I remember enjoying. Uh, Fellini's Satyricon is a little strange. He has a great documentary called The Clowns. Fellini, a huge fan of clowns. I remember, I don't know how many people have seen it. It's fairly uh, under the radar, even if you're a Fellini fan. But Fellini's documentary, The Clowns, is actually a great doc about his love of clowns. Uh, so I think he's a, a brilliant filmmaker, and I completely agree with Marty on that. I didn't even mention La Dolce Vita, obviously, which a lot of people love as well. I mean, the, the image of uh, Anita Ekberg dancing in the Trevi Fountain. When I went to Italy with my wife on our honeymoon, that's all I kept thinking about was La Dolce Vita and Anita Ekberg dancing in the Trevi Fountain. But I love that Scorsese is so passionate about this. Uh, I know some are going to say, Joe, he's being an old man and a crank and get with the times, but no one can deny, just as he says Fellini's an artist, that Martin Scorsese is an artist, and that he cares about the cinema as much as he cares about anything, which I think is something to be lost. Yeah, and I, and when I've heard that criticism, it 
I think he comes across as an elder statesman and a master of his craft who has the authority to speak on this. But I love your I think it ties into what you're saying about Supernova, where the best movies and what cinema can do is connect to you on an emotional level. And that as opposed to content, I don't you know, content for the sake of content doesn't really do that. I compare it to you know, eating chips versus eating a full meal. And I think that he is an elder statesman that can articulate these thoughts and be a, a source of authority on this. Yeah, that's my big thing is like, do you trust the person whom you're speaking about? Like if you're just some jackass on the street, I totally get the fact you're going to be dismissive of them. But the fact that this is a guy who knows his stuff, like even if you are not a Martin Scorsese fan, right? Maybe if you said, well, I don't like his movies. They're too violent or they're too long or they're too male dominated, whatever. You would say, well, he's widely considered to be America's greatest living director or second best behind Steven Spielberg and clearly one of the top 10 filmmakers of all time. Like in, in that t- the Ringer podcast about Taxi Driver, Sean Fantasy said he's the most important and influential American filmmaker of the last 75 years. Think about that. That's going back to Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. So, I mean, you ask anybody, objectively, they will tell you this is a real beacon of cinema. He is an expert on the topic. So if he, if he speaks... I think we should all listen. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with him, but I certainly agree with him more than I disagree with him. I mean, remember when Ben Lyons is here, he was joking about algorithms and, you know, what pops up in your Netflix queue. I agree with Marty. I, I don't want to be told, oh, because you like this, you'll like this. Like, I like a little bit of everything. I mean, that, that's what I think is the great thing about cinema is nobody stays in one lane. You know, if you asked me and Joe, two hardcore cinephiles, what movies we like, you'd get a wide array of movies, as you know from listening to this podcast, because we're not going to be defined by just one genre. So I do think his point has a lot of, um, a lot of value because right now, so much is about content. Just stream out content. Just pump out content. Is it actually good? Who cares? We're trying to get people to watch. There's too much competition. There's Hulu. There's Netflix. There's Amazon Prime. There's the big four television networks. There's cable. There's HBO. There's Showtime. Like Just whatever. Just get it on the air. And I agree with this point that sometimes less is more. Worry about the quality rather than the quantity. Uh, he's the guy who only makes movies every couple of years. Prior to the pandemic hitting, Killers of the Flower Moon was going to start shooting in March. All of a sudden, pandemic comes. DiCaprio... It's going to be him and De Niro. I've read the book. There's a good guy and a bad guy, to be quite simple. De Niro, as I was reading the book, clearly playing the bad guy. Leo going to play the good guy. Tom White, who is investigating a bunch of murders of the Osage Indians. Excellent book, by the way. And then what happened is Leo goes, nah, I don't want to play the good guy. I'm like, what? He told Eric Roth, the screener, I want to play the bad guy. There's another bad guy with De Niro's bad guy. He's like, oh, I, want to, I want to be with Bob. Like, okay. Uh, this will change things a little bit, which apparently is one of the reasons why Paramount scoff at the price tag. Apparently, it was going to be you know, $100 million. Leo, good guy. De Niro, bad guy. We're good to go. Then it was like, mm, Leo wants to be the other bad guy. Like, it's not as big a role, but he really wants to play the bad guy. Like, uh, apparently, we're not going to give you $100 million. Okay, here comes Apple. Like, last time it was Netflix coming in for the Irishman. Now here's Apple. Here's $200 million. Good to go. So who's playing the new lead? How about Jesse Plemons? Well, I've talked about previously, he's in Judas and the Black Messiah. He, I love the fact he's a poor man's Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was in the Irishman, if you recall, playing Hoffa's kid. Nephew. He was definitely in the movie. Um, so Jesse Plums is in. I love it. Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's book of the same name, set in 1920s Oklahoma, adapted by screenwriter Eric Roth, Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, starring in the film. Plemons will now take on the role of Tom White, the lead FBI agent investigating the murders, which was the role DiCaprio was originally going to play before he stepped to a secondary lead role after script changes. Lily Gladstone will play the role of Molly Burkhardt, an Osage married to Ernest Burkhardt, and DiCaprio is the nephew, while De Niro is the strong-handed rancher. It's going to be a while, okay? They haven't even started shooting yet. They start shooting in April. Uh, Noah Marty takes about a year to edit. I, I'm thinking like December 2022. It'll be nice. Hopefully, we can see Killers of the Flower Moon. 
Talk a little writing. Writers Guild of America, weighing in the best screenplays of the last year, releasing the nominees for its annual awards. Uh, helps us kind of get a, a better picture of what might get nominated. 2021 Writers Guild Awards will take place Sunday, March 21st in Los Angeles. Original screenplay, Judas and the Black Messiah, Palm Springs, love seeing that. One of my top 10 films of the year. Screenplay by Andy Ciara and the story by Andy and Max Barbacow. Promising Young Woman, Sam Surface Fired Up, written by Emerald Fennel of Focus Features. Trial of the Chicago Set, written by Aaron Sorkin. You'd assume that's the favorite. The one that I'm really praying to see win, Sound of Metal. Screenplay by Darius Martyr, Abraham Martyr, story by Darius Martyr, and Derek C. in France, who, of course, is uh, the impresario behind Blue Valentine. So, Sound of Metal, I'm hoping, really wins our uh, original screenplay, but it's probably going to be Sorkin. Adapted screenplay, Borat. Yes, let's go SBC. Would love to see him win. By the way, have you seen how many people are nominated for the writing of Borat? Screenplay by Sasha Baron Cohen, Anthony Hines, Dan Swimer, Peter Bainham, Erica Riven Oha, Dan Mazur, Jenna Friedman, Lee Kern. I've never seen that many writers on one movie. Story by Sasha Baron Cohen and Anthony Hines and Dan Swimer and Nina Pedrad. That's insane. I just want to see them win to see all those people go up there. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, News of the World, One Night Miami, and The White Tiger. By the way, speaking of Rogowski, he texted me the other day. He goes, you got to see The White Tiger. I'm like, I don't know. It's on Netflix. I'll see it at some point, perhaps. Um, I'm hoping One Night in Miami wins. Screenplay by Kemp Powers, which is based on his stage play. Although, to be honest, let's be real. Come on. Borat should win. If Borat wins, although I don't know how much of it is written, right? Because so much of it is ad-libbed. But maybe a lot of it is written, at least in theory, kind of like Kirby Enthusiasm. He writes an outline. Who knows? I'm cheering for Borat. Let's be clear. And documentary screenplay, um, I got to watch The Dissident at one point. The Dissident was among the nominees. Um, how about we do a quick Golden Globe Awards preview? I haven't seen all the nominees like off the top of my head, so I'll do it real quick. Best Picture Drama, I think it's going to be Nomadland, but watch out for the trial of the Chicago 7. That, that is coming on strong. It's a good two-horse race. Nomadland has been cleaning up with the critics, but trial of the Chicago 7 has a ton of actors in it, okay? It's very actorly, which these award shows tend to like. Remember the movie Crash when it beat Brokeback Mountain? It had a lot of actors in it, so watch out for that. Best Director, I think it's going to be Chloe Jaw for Nomadland. Best Actor, Chadwick Boseman, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Best Actress, I'll go Frances McDormand. Of course, these are both in a dramatic category. Frances McDormand for Nomadland. Uh, supporting actor, I will go with uh, my man Leslie Odom. I hope he wins for One Night Miami playing Sam Cooke. Supporting actress is tricky. I think it's Amanda Seyfried for Mank, but I wouldn't be surprised. I would love it, obviously, if Maria Bakalova would win. Uh, the uh, Young Jo Jing is not nominated for Minari, but I hope she gets nominated. She's up for the SAG. So I hope Bakalova wins there. The comedy, I don't know as well. Like I think best actor in a comedy, hopefully Sasha Baron Cohen wins. I don't even know off the top of my head who's up for best actress. But those feel like my nominees for now. The Globes are always a little bit tricky. Like I said, my man Pacino's up for Hunters, which wasn't great, but I love Al, so hopefully he wins. Uh, Golden Globes will be this Sunday. We will do a full recap coming on Monday. So we're actually going to release the podcast on Monday just to capitalize off the Globes. Uh, as my boy Max Bredow said to me, I'm just disappointed it's not going to be Gervais again. That's right. Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, they're always funny together, so it should be interesting. So Golden Globe Awards. Sunday, Joe, will be locked in. Yeah, Sunday. I can't wait for it. And Adnan, you heard it here first, but because it's the Hollywood Foreign Press, I'm telling you right now, I disagree with it, but I really think that Hamilton is going to win. 
for uh, best motion picture, musical, or comedy. It would be so what the Hollywood Foreign Press does. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's an excellent point. That is very Hollywood Foreign Press. I believe I saw a story. I don't want to go 100% on this, but I saw a headline. I believe there is no minority members in the Hollywood Foreign Press. I, I, I go, that, you got to be kidding me. I think there's 53 members of the Hollywood Foreign Press. Maybe I'm wrong on this. Someone can fact check me on this. Do a quick Google while I'm talking. But I think I saw it the other day in the Hollywood Report. Something crossed my, uh, my inbox, and I go, what a joke. So to your point, that would not be surprising at all. Hamilton, your boy uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda wins another award. What the hell? Let's just keep giving him awards for Hamilton. It's great. Uh, Coming up, the great comedian Louis Anderson talking about his role and his life coming to America, plus our picks of the Mount Rushmore of Stanley Tucci roles. Well, it's a real pleasure to bring in Louis Anderson. Coming to America is coming soon on Amazon Prime, March 5th to be specific. And it's great to have Louis Anderson back reprising his role. We're going to talk about that movie and his career and so much more. But Louis, first and foremost, it's great to see you here via Zoom. Have you gotten used to this, doing interviews and such via Zoom? How disconnected does it feel to you? I don't feel very disconnected because, you know, I, I'm engaged. I don't look at it... Uh... I believe in engaging in this stuff all the way if you're going to do something. And so uh, it's just, you know, we're actually connected. We're, we're visually connected. We're, you know, audio connected. And we both are show business crazy people. And so <laughs> we're, we're both, our, our common purpose is, is to, uh, is to uh, make each other's job easier. And, and that's, you know, I, I love show business. I was born to be in show business. That that's the business that would have been best for me. That or or probably uh, therapy. I would have been a good therapist. I think. Why do you think that is? You know, I have a lot of empathy. My mom had a uh, tremendous amount of empathy and uh, humanity and uh, patience, and always saw the sunny side of every single situation, no matter what. It was irritating. It was so good. It was so good. How can that be good? It is, Louie. It is. As you said, born to be in show business, it can be such a challenging profession. But I love the fact with your work, it's always authentic. It's honest. Uh, it's genuine. What is it about show business that you felt like, you know what, I'm compelled to do this? Well, I'm a show off, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm 10th I'm of 11 children. I had to create my own being. Out of, you know, uh, 10 other people, I had to find a way uh, to be interesting, I think, or to be, I listened, I think, really well. I think I was listening all the time. Well, that's the key. Like you said, you were observant. Like I was thinking about Goodfellas is one of my favorite movies. And I always tell people, when I, when I read the book, Nicholas Pileggi said this. He said, you know, so many gangsters, if you meet them, they're very self-centered. They're egotistical. The difference was with Ray Liotta's character, Henry Hill, he said, Henry Hill was all eyes. And I said, that was such a good line. Like for an actor like you, 10th of 11 kids, you're all eyes. You're seeing everything's happening and you're using all that and you don't even realize it sometimes. And you know, Henry Hill was a fan of mine and we hung out. I live in Vegas and we hung out all the time. Oh, my God. Okay. I, I need some Henry Hill stories now. Go ahead. I would go 
to the restaurant. When I first met him, uh, he goes, I'm Henry Hill. And I went, who's that? No, I didn't put it together right away. And then, you know, right away when I met him, I went, you know, oh, this guy's got, got people with him. This guy has, a, these are bodyguards or they're helping him with something because that, you know, right away. I mean, you know, I grew up in the projects. I know this is somebody you should, you know, take serious. But he had a great sense of humor and he was really funny and um, authentic and genuine. And you're right, he was all eyes. When I walked in that restaurant where he was always hanging out, he knew I got there before I got there, it seems like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I go, how did he know I was going to? Yeah, Henry sent this over for you. Oh, <laughs> I'd make someone else take a sip out of it first. So. Well, it was amazing because I'm just thinking, listen, you and I are not a part of a criminal enterprise, but I would just think if I got out of that world, I would keep my head down. Every time I look around, I go, oh, Henry Hill is in the Howard Stern show. Oh, well, Henry Hill just wrote another book, The Lufthansa Heist. Like for a guy who was allegedly in Windows Protection, he got around a little bit, I yeah, thought. Yeah, you know, he made the most of it. And I think he had the right attitude. And I think, I think he was likable. Yeah. And I think that's why he didn't get killed. Yeah. I think some people, ah, that's Henry, you know, that's <laughs> all right. Don't do it again, Henry. I won't, I won't do it again. <laughs> Liar. Uh, but he was, he was really terrific. Really. It was fun. And I, he gave me an autographed picture of himself. And I love that, you know, cause I'm a fan of show business. You know, I'm the first pe person to go, Hey, that's De Niro over there. Hey, that's uh, Henry Hill. You know what I mean? I'm the. I love that movie so much. There's so much sub subtlety in it. Oh my god! Yeah, that's yeah. how real gangsters are. Not the other mob movies. They're good, great mob movies. Don't get me wrong; they're iconic. But that was the first thing we really got to look at: these flawed gangsters that were, you know, only as good as their last job, kind of only as flush as, you know, and, um, you know, flawed people and they pick, uh, you know, eventually you're gonna, you know, you're gonna get in trouble if you're, <laughs> the odds, right? The odds, if you keep uh, stealing stuff, you're probably gonna get caught one time. Yeah, that's the greatness of Scorsese. It's exhilarating early on. You feel like you're Joe Pesci and De Niro, robbing trucks, getting whatever you want, booze, Lufthansa heist. But then when the comes crashing down and you're having a cocaine outbreak and paranoia and there's a helicopter following in, your brother's not stirring the pasta. You go, okay, you know what? This is why this world is not for me. And you're right. That's great filmmaking because it, it entrances you, it lures you in and makes it seductive. But then you realize, whoa, everything has a price, right? Yeah, it does. Uh, we're talking with Louis Anderson, Coming to America, which is uh, coming out, the sequel. There's so much great stuff over your career, Louis. I, I want to go to life with Louis. So I remember my cousin Imran was a huge fan of that cartoon show and won Emmy Awards. And he goes, you know what? When you t I texted him yesterday. He goes, when you talk to Louis, tell him. That show was so good because it was so smart and so funny. And he's got such a great voice. He's got one of the great animated voices ever. Tell me about life with Louis, how that first came about. Well, you know, I as a stand-up, um, Margaret Lesh, who was over at Fox Kids, uh, called my agent and said, hey, um, she made Bobby's World and, you know, some other, you know, the Howie Mandel cartoon. Yep. And she said, we'd like to do yours. I go, I don't know if that would work. And uh, then Matt O'Callaghan, who's the animator, he drew pictures of my family, 
you know, the character animated and then took my stand up where I do all the voices in my stand up of my family. And he put the pictures over it. And I said, okay, I see it. I can make it, I can do it. And so, so then my dad character was, you know, like such a dream to do because I got to reinvent my family, especially my dad. Uh, yeah, you know, he was a, he was a home run character and I knew it. And then Louie always complaining, which is, you know, I'm a complainer. And, uh, and so that kind of was really a good back and forth where your dad never understands. And I think that era, we're actually in the, in the process of pitching it uh, to bring it back. Nice. Um, and we think, you know, we hope that somebody wants to do it because, you know, we really did tackle a lot of things that nobody was talking about homeless and, you know, uh, people dying. And, you know, and I thought that was really important. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do that stuff. And uh, I wanted it to be authentic. So um, I think the authenticity is what worked about that show and, and my voice. All right. <laughs> because I think that was who I was. You know, that's, that was me. I'd be excited when I was a kid. I'd go, all right. You got it. <laughs> we won. The Vikings won. The Vikings won. You do so many great voices. Do you do you do a lot of impressions as well, or is it more just being able to do funny voices? You know, I think I for a while I toyed with impressions, but I never was very good at it. I mean, you know. And then I met Frank Caliendo, and he was so good at it. I went, oh, I'd be no, I, I can't really do it. But I can, you know, like I think I I think I can. I think more than the voice. I think I'm really good at getting the, I'm all eyes. I, can yeah. get, I, I observe really well. And I think all com- really good comics do. How about when you did Family Feud? Like a game show to me, I, I, listen, there's people I know who are like, oh, I think it'd be the best. And I go, really? I go, I think it's a lot of work. Like I think it's, first off, people don't realize the shooting schedule. You're not doing one a week. You're shooting a bunch in a row. I think you've got to have the right sense of energy, the right tone. You're likable. You're funny. You're sarcastic. We don't offend anybody. Like I, I think there's a lot going on. What was it like for you when you did Family Feud? Well, I got a little flack from my fans. They thought it was not good for me to do a game show. But, you know, here I am in 19, I guess, what, 65, 60s. Whenever Family Feud came out, I'm sitting on the couch. My dad's sitting in his chair. My mom's in the kitchen and we're watching Richard Dawson and we're playing the family feud because if you're in the room, you're going to answer the questions. And my dad would complain about Richard Dawson kissing all the girls. And my mom would irritate my dad with going, I think he's sweet. I think he's nice. And I would try to answer the questions. And then when that offer came, I said, well, you know, I, I do jokes about my family. I've written books about my family. I did a cartoon about my family. I, I think I should do Family Feud. I was a, I'm a huge game show person. I love game shows. When you grow up poor, you watch game shows in hopes that you could get on that game show and win some money or a new car. Mm-hmm. All poor people are in hopes of getting something nice and new and getting out of their situation. So I, uh, I did it and I was some of the funnest three years of my life. 
Good for you. I'm glad you were able to enjoy it. And it's five it a shows a day. Yeah. But only 35 days for 180 shows. So that's a, I mean, you know, I, I like working. Yeah. That's true. I, I, I always imagine, like, you want to do other things. You'd go, great, this is good. What's next? You wouldn't just go, let me just, like, 35 days, to your point. Oh, I can go get some gigs, do some stamp, do whatever. Like, I guess it was palatable. But it's it's funny how you described it, your dad saying, like, what a pig he's being. And your mom's going, oh, he's so sweet. Like, I, that's what I mean. There's a fine line between, oh, he's charming and he's being a flirt. Like, it's, I, I would always imagine that to be a challenge. Yeah, well, I just tried to make, I, you know, I had to be not be too mean. Right. You know, I... Because, you know, I come from a family of 11. You can be a little mean just because you're protecting yourself. But, uh, no, I just tried to, uh, I mean, I tried to keep it all in my face, the expression I'd have when they give me a bad answer. I mean, Steve Harvey seems to be, was invented to make this show. You yeah. know, because he's so perfect at just being there a million percent. When you make a game show, when you do anything, you have to be present. And to be present is the hardest thing about doing that five mm. shows a day. You have to be present. You can't be, if you're not engaged, how are the fans at home going to be engaged for the show? Yeah, that's well said. We're talking to Louis Anderson coming to America, coming out March 5th, Amazon Prime. Uh, I can only imagine, Louis, how proud you are of Baskets. Uh, I mean, that show on FX, as you said, with all you've done with your comedy and how authentic it is, how personal it is, Emmy-winning performance, gutsy, courageous, outside the box. Tell me about baskets. Well, you know, like I always thought I got, I, I, I want to be, I want to get a part that's really great. That's what I thought about a lot. I go, I don't, I've had a great career, but I have not scored that part that people are talking about. And so I got a call from Louis C.K., Zach Galifianakis, and Jonathan Kreisel, the creators of the show. And they said, hey, Louis, um, we want you to do a part on Zach's sitcom. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. I didn't have to, I mean, I didn't have to have any more information than that. I will do it, <laughs> you know. I'm in Vegas working at a show, but, you know, they said, we want you to play the mom. I go, yes. I got it. <laughs> yes. I knew right away. I always thought I'd play my dad character on TV, but it was my mom. It was my mom that I was going to get a chance to play. And it was in that humanity and all that stuff that comes along with it. You know, uh, she won the Emmy that night too. Mm -hmm. You know, she raised 11 kids, put up with my dad, who was not a nice guy a lot of the times. And she, she's the one that, you know, rained on that, you know, she got it. And that character means a lot to a lot of people. And I tried to make, I tried to leave Louis Anderson out of the equation completely. I, people would say, you're a man playing a woman. I go, I'm a I'm playing a woman. I'm a woman playing a woman. I want you to know that I'm not, there's no man in this whole thing with me. I am being his mom and I am really serious about it. But, you know, she was a little crazy, but it was a wonderful, I mean, the people I worked with on that, you know, Zach and Jonathan and Martha and, you know, that, that was a really great experience. And Zach, Zach, he made a sound and he goes, I think my mom sounds like this. Ah. And Louie said, well, 
that sounds like Louie Anderson. Should we get Louie Anderson? Should we call him? And that's how it all, <laughs> that's how they told me it went down. And so I always tell people, hang on, because I got my dream part when I was 61. I remember when you won the Emmy, like there was just such a roar, like, I know winning awards isn't why you do it, but like you could feel collectively people were thrilled. Like I think people were genuinely happy for you. Hey, good dude, hard worker, been around for a long time. And B, hey, that role was pretty cool and pretty special. I don't know if, I don't know if you felt that, but I felt it watching it. I felt it was really special. I was really proud of that part. I was proud of the work. The scripts were great. The writers were great. And I gave it everything I had. Couple more to go here. Talk with Louis Anderson. Um, notable alumni, Johnson High School, the east side of St. Paul, Minnesota. The reason I know this is because our producer, Joe, also went to that high school. He can play 17 different guitar chords along with recording this interview. I'm looking at other notable alumni here, Louis. We've got uh, Herb Brooks, of course, the great coach, uh, Miracle on Ice. Uh, Ray Hitchcock is a former pro football player. What can you tell me about this high school? This is purely a self-indulgent question here for my producer, Joe. I also think that... Supreme Court Justice. Uh, Warren Berger, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, 69 to 86. Yes. yes. And well the governor of Minnesota, Anderson also. Yes, Wendell Anderson. I mean, Wendell this is pretty Anderson. good high school here, man. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know, but, you know, Eastside, that uh, was a great school in Johnson High. The hockey team, you know, used to win all the, a lot of the tournaments and, uh, you know, it was a, a real collective of working class people, poor kids, kids that were a little better off and some kids who are a little better off than them. But it was a working class, good Minnesotans, shovel the walk, keep the walk clean, keep the yard <laughs> nice in the summer. And, uh, you know, St. Paul isn't Minneapolis, but damn it, it's St. Paul. <laughs> and, um, you know, I still feel like it's, that that kind of place and uh very uh very happy well, i'm glad that you're produ not your producer uh of the whole shebang there um went to johnson what year did he graduate joe when did you graduate can you jump in here 2008 don't yeah. talk to him anymore coming to america i graduated in 41 1940 <laughs> well you know, that's that joke that I do where I go, do you ever go on line to, to sign up for something? They say, put the year you were born in and you just keep scrolling down to the <laughs> century you're in. <laughs> Hold on! I'll get to it eventually. Uh, Coming to America. It's one of the most beloved movies ever. I, I was uh, 10 years old when I saw it. I still can quote it so much. I saw the new movie. They were kind of to send me a screener. I can't wait for everyone to see it. Um, just tell me about your experiences. I mean, getting to ride with the band again. I, I don't know if you ever thought a sequel would happen. You're so funny in the original, the whole scene. where in a couple more years, I'll be on fries. Uh, the fact that you're back again with Eddie and Arsenio, what's it like? It was great. You know, we, you know, slid right into it. It was just really nice. We, we all, I got to work with Eddie and Arsenio and John Amos and, you know, uh, Lisa and everybody was right in that, that group, you know, and we are all fit like a glove again. And there's, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just glad 33 years, I think it was 88. Yeah. You either 44 or 40, 42. I saw it when I was 10. So yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, keep it all, uh, you know, like, 
I'd love to be in my 40s. Don't squander your 40s. Anyway, um, I loved it. You know, I that movie changed my life for a lot of reasons. One, it gave a whole group of people a chance to see me that probably wouldn't have seen me otherwise. You know, um, you know, what's amazing is when I, I would go to get in a car, you know, a car would be sent for me in my career, you go do a TV show or something, send a car. And the drivers were often from other countries, you know, like Nigeria and different African countries. And they would whip around and go, hey, <laughs> you're the fry guy. <laughs> McDowell's. Yeah. I go, yeah. They go, that's why I came to this country because of that movie. And so, wow. you, know, you know, you have no idea what you're doing not me, but what Eddie was doing there, how many people came to this country with that dream of, you know, doing something great. And yeah. it, it was really, it's really great. I'm glad that I don't have to answer the question, uh, are you doing a sequel? Because that's what I would, I would tell you that I have to say every week in the last 33 years, probably in the last, you know, five years after the film was made. Every week, somebody said, are you going to do another one? Are they going to do another one? And I go, I don't know. And then when it came up, uh, <laughs> I just was so happy. And I, I had such a good talk with Eddie and Arsenio. We talked about stand-up because we're all, you know, initially stand-ups. And Eddie was such a great stand-up, you know. And we talked about him going back on the road, you know, and then, the pandemic happened, but you know, I think Eddie had it all planned out to do this movie and then go back on the road. And um, I told him he could open for me anytime he wants. So, um, <laughs> which was really fun. And you know, he's such a great, he has such a great sense of humor. And I don't think people realize how many movies Eddie Murphy has made yes. and how, I mean, he made a film called Mr. Church that he should have got a little uh, Academy Award nomination for, but, Eddie Murphy has probably worked steady since that first movie and always tried to do something new and different and then got into the whole kids genre with because he has so many kids and a family. And he's, when I saw the movie, they sent me a thing where I could watch the movie. And I see that he answered every question. He tied up every loose end and he spoke on a lot of levels to a lot of things. And he picked a lot of people that he was friends with and, and he picked a lot of people that he liked and he got a chance to kind of button up something in life. When you get a chance to button up something and to kind of like, okay, then this yeah. is really good. And um, Leslie, Leslie is great in it too. Um, yeah. From Saturday night live. And uh, she's, She's terrific. Everybody's terrific in it. Yeah, know? we talked to Jermaine Fowler, and I mean, he plays Eddie's kid. He's hysterical. Oh, I mean, that just, guy. He's he's going to be a big star, don't you think? Uh, his comic timing was so good, and I his t audition story was amazing. He said that how he went for the audition, and oh, Eddie's interested in you. Like he's just got a real poise about him, but clearly, right attitude and just just funny man. Just gets it. He's got the chops. You know, it's hard to it's hard to be subtly funny like that. You know, because that, and I was watching uh, uh, 48 Hours recently. Somebody sent me a clip. Yeah. 
And man, that movie is so. Oh, well, when Eddie goes in the country and western bar, the cowboy hat. I mean that. <laughs> that's the scene they sent me because Peter Jacobson. You know Peter. Yeah, he yeah. Played the bartender and did a hundred films. Yeah. Um, he was played my brother in Baskets. Yeah. And he is the bartender in that, and I wanted to see the scene with him. And uh, Eddie was so <laughs> great in that scene, and fearless, and knew what to do, and talk about a great voice, huh? His voice fits oh. for anything. I'm I remember Nick Nolte an animated show. I remember Nick Nolte. One critic once said he has a voice like a talking ashtray. So I mean, you got Nick Nolte's voice, and you got Eddie Murphy's voice. <laughs> great line. Yeah, yeah, uh, that is a great line, and they were great in it. I mean. Uh, yeah, that was really good. Louis Anderson, awesome stuff. As always, you can see him uh, in the new film, Coming to America on Amazon Prime, March 5th. Great show, Life with Louis. Hopefully it's coming back. Emmy Award winner for Baskets. The second youngest of 11 kids. And as you said, doing stand-up all the time. This was so much fun, Louis. I can't thank you enough. I loved it. And then I'll come back when and talk to you when... Uh we're getting ready to launch Life with Louie, huh? Oh, absolutely. I would love to talk to you again. I, I'm really excited. It seems like this is going to happen. So this is I great mean, news. I think that, I think it's good timing. Well, listen, last point I'll make. That show, to your point about being authentic and putting yourself into it, that's what Louis C.K. was doing with his shows. Like it was, it was that tipping point of comedy, but like you said, taboo subjects. But can we do this in a way which is funny yet honest? That, it really was an important point that you made that show then. I think so. I mean, I'm proud. To, I couldn't be any more proud of that show. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Thanks, Louis. Thanks so much. Mount Rushmore. Tucci, I think he's one of the great actors of his generation. Wonderful guy. My friend Will Thomason tells me, I believe Tucci's mother was a teacher or vice principal in Westchester uh, here in the, just outside New York City. Dad, man of the people. Uh, Tucci would go to the high school often, like, you know, talk to classes and stuff. Will's like, oh, dude, he's awesome. And of course he's awesome. He's Stanley Tucci. Um, so as far as, listen, number one, right out of the way, Big Night, okay? Big Night's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's the best movie ever about food. It's one of the best movies ever about brothers. Uh, it's sweet. It's gentle. It's funny. Amazing music with Louis Prima. Great supporting cast. Isabella Rossellini. Uh, Ian Holm is hilarious. Campbell Scott co-directed it with Tucci. I love the last shot. Two brothers making eggs. I mean, it's used all the time. I mean, not to name drop. I feel like I'm doing a lot of name dropping today. Bob Costas was texting me a story. I was asking him about, you know, baseball players in the past, right? Bob obviously is from St. Louis. I'm talking about Lou Brock, Bob Gibson. And he was telling me this story about going drinking and eating with his friends. And he goes, we went to St. Louis the Hill. And I'm talking a meal like big night style. Like, I just love the fact that you can use that in conversation. Everyone knows. And if you don't know, you should know. If someone says to you, I had a meal big night style, like, oh, wow, big night. Oh, yeah. I love that movie. <laughs> Must have had some really killer food. I'm like, oh, absolutely, dude. Tucci and Tony Shalhoub together? Listen to the Tony Shalhoub interview on Cinephile. I think it was uh, maybe two years ago. As soon as I met him, I bet, dude, I got to talk to you about Big Night. I freaking love that movie. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He goes, it's, uh, it's definitely one of the movies I'm most proudest of. People often talk about it. So for Shalhoub and Tucci. And then Shalhoub, of course, won three Emmy Awards for Monk. And then Tucci, I believe, won an Emmy Award as like a guest star on Monk. I'm not familiar with Monk, but someone can, I mean, I know what it's about. OCD guy, and obviously Shalhoub's really funny, but 
apparently, yeah, Big Night was their movie together. They've known each other for years. And then uh, Shalhoub was like, you know what, Stanley, why don't you come on my show? All right, sure. Uh, you want an Emmy? I will? Yeah, you will. There you go. Bam. So Big Night, without a doubt, is uh, my number one. I also love Spotlight. Tucci was on, I believe, with Mark Marin, And Marin was raving about it. He's like, oh, yeah, I love that movie. He said, you know, I didn't meet the real guy until after the movie because everyone told me he's pretty intimidating. Like, he's not a friendly guy. He does not, he just doesn't have time for you. Like, he's, he's not going to want to meet some Hollywood actor. So he goes, I did the movie. And then afterwards, I was so grateful. He actually called me and said, hey, that was excellent. And you did an excellent job of it. And he said, but all that stuff was realistic in the movie. You know, at one point, you know, I'm not married. I don't have time for it, right? That, that, that's what this guy is. Like, my work's too important. Uh, but genuinely heroic. Mitchell Garbedian. That's the character's name in Spotlight 2015. Small role, but I thought it was a great role. Uh, I should mention the one role he's been nominated for ever for an Academy Award. And that is the lovely Bones playing a bad guy. One of my favorite critics is Ty Burr, the Boston Globe. I couldn't disagree with Ty more. He said of Tucci's performance, he's a very good actor giving a bad performance. I know what he means because it's a little bit uh, ham-handed at times. Tucci's a little more subtle. This one's a little more like, you know, he's got the bad comb over and the mustache and the glasses. And Hey, you're that salmon girl, right? But, but I thought he was great. I mean, I was so happy he got nominated for an Oscar. And I think he's a pretty good villain. Because again, Tucci to me seems like a very likable guy, more often than not playing a heroic character. So seeing him playing a truly wretched person who is uh, intent on murdering a young girl, I'm like, all right, that, that's acting. That's definitely stretching. So I'm going to include the lovely Bones. It gets hard after this, right? I, I, do I go Julie and Julia? I mean, he's great there with Meryl Streep. Excellent performance. Um, I'm going to go with Joe Gould's Secret, which is another film that he wrote and directed. He had this stretch. He had Big Night, The Imposters, which is a really funny farce with Oliver Platt. He jokes no one saw it, but I think it's hilarious. And uh, Joe Gould's Secret. Joe Gould's Secret's great. It's him and Ian Holm, and um, Tucci plays a guy who is an uh, intrepid reporter who discovers this homeless man who believes he has the history of the world and uh, written down, and he's like this crazy old codger homeless man played by Ian Holm. And uh, I know I'm not doing a great job describing it, but it's, it's wise, it's witty, uh, it's impactful, and I like the fact that Tucci directed it. Like I said, he had this stretch. He made three straight movies. He starred and directed them, but I, I wish he would do more of that. I mean, now obviously he's busy eating his way through Italy and making a bunch of money like The Hunger Games, picking up some easy paychecks. But I'm telling you, Joe Gould's Secret is a great, great film if you can find it. He's also obviously made cameos, you know, Road to Perdition, Made in Manhattan, that kind of stuff. But those are going to be my four when it comes to Stanley Tucci. Joe, what do you got? And then um, you and Bob Costas is going to kill me, but I have never seen Big Night. Oh, I, no. know. Oh, no. I know. Oh. I know. I know. I, I, I I'm, I'm going to text too, Bob so Costas now, right now. Like, Bob, I got to tell you something. It's very important. Joe Engelbrecht, my cinephile <laughs> producer. Like, what? Like, oh, my God. Bob's going to be appalled. Go no, ahead. no, please don't. I, I, I will watch it right now during this recording. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely need to get in at this point. But for my list, uh, I have Spotlight as well. Fantastic movie. What can what else can you say about it? Um, I also have The Devil Wears Prada. Yes. I think he he really captures that 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 kind of character and that kind of environment and fashion scene so well. Um, I'm also going to go, and I'm totally dating myself, but I'm going to go with the Hunger Games series. Just as a whole, he plays great as the MC TV maestro in that series. And then my last pick is going to be not a movie, but the TV show Feud by Ryan Murphy uh, between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And he plays the studio executive Jack Warner in it. And if you like Ryan Murphy, if you like his work, if you like that series particularly, I can't recommend that season enough. So my four are Double Wears Prada, Hunger Games, Spotlight, and Feud. 
Love that you mentioned Devil Wears Prada. He is really funny in that. Like I said, he's made a couple of movies that are Meryl Streep. Julian Julia is also excellent, which I mentioned. Not familiar with Feud, so I didn't know he played Jack Warner. I mean, that's a pretty meaty uh, substance material there for Stanley Tucci to dive into. Like you said, if you like Ryan Murphy, that's definitely good. And The Hunger Games, it got me to thinking. Like, I, I don't know if we can find this, Joe, but like, what do you think Stanley Tucci's net worth is? Like, he's one of those guys that I'm like, oh, he probably doesn't have much money. You know, he's one of these classic character actors. But then you look at these movies, you go, well, hang on a second. He was in The Hunger Games. Like, I'm sure you got a decent paycheck for that. He was also, I believe, Transformers, a couple of them. So I'm like, you know what? I know he's got five kids. He doesn't strike me as a type who's out there lavishly spending. But I think Tucci's had a pretty good career. Prof- I mean, just saying, you know, fiscally-wise. Okay. How, uh, this is according to CelebrityNetWorth.com. The over-under is $20 million. Are you taking the over or are you taking the under? Yeah, like, I'm thinking the under. Like, I think to me, Stanley Tucci, like, he's got maybe $10 million net worth, tops. Okay. According to CelebrityNetWorth.com, he is worth around $25 million. <laughs> Wow, that is crazy. <laughs> like, man, yeah. boy's done good. Like, I just listen for a little bald Italian guy. Stanley Tucci is crushing it. Imagine going to the craps table with Tucci. I'm like, hey, Tucci, come on. You can give me a couple here. Let's go. You're doing pretty well here. You were in Beethoven. <laughs> come on. Oh, that's great. Now, I, uh, like I said, I've heard nothing but great things about him. Hopefully, we'll get him on the podcast at some point. And I'm really enjoying his series, once again, on CNN as he's just eating his way through Italy. Uh, very, very charming, very, very uh, entertaining guy. And obviously, a great, great actor. Good movie choices there by Joe. Thanks once again to Louis Anderson. He could not have been warmer, uh, as you heard in that interview. Obviously, being a Minnesota guy, St. Paul guy like Joe, you could tell he was... Um, very gracious and hospitable, has a real inimitable style, that voice, that laugh, that look. We love everything about Louis Anderson. So thanks once again to him for making time, and hopefully we'll get him back when uh, the reboot of Life with Louis happens. Uh, coming up next week, Jermaine Fowler, who is uh, the star of Coming to America. We'll do a proper review of that film and talk to Jermaine, who has great stories, in particular his audition. How did he land the role? He's got an awesome story for all of us. And uh, I look forward to seeing this new uh, The People vs. Billy Holiday. I believe that's the name of the movie. Andre Day um, playing Lady Billy. And it's directed by Lee Daniels. I believe it's out this Friday. So I look forward to watching that film as well. All that more coming up here in Cinephile. Once again, thank you for the support. It means a ton. We'll see you at the movies. 